Hello and welcome to Exploring Global Problems, a podcast where we talk to academics from Swansea University whose groundbreaking research is tackling global challenges, from health innovation to sustainable futures and the environment, from digital technologies to clean energy. My name is Sam Blacksland, and today I'm joined by Dr. Sarah Roberts. Sarah is a senior lecturer at Swansea University. Her research is focused on astronomy, and she's the director of education for the Forks Telescope Project. She's also the inclusivity lead for the College of Science, which means she engages with young people and tries to increase their interest in science, technology, engineering, and maths. Now, Sarah is a Welsh speaker, so I'm actually able to say Troes o'ch chi, Sarah, a diolch am fod yma. Welcome to Exploring Global Problems. Diolch am fawr, mae'n gwych bod yma. Thanks for having me. Can I start by asking you to introduce your research and just tell us a bit about your, your findings and what you do? Yeah, so my work with the Forks Telescope project is all about trying to engage and enthuse young people, so the next generation, in STEM subjects. And it's through using astronomy as the hook. Lots of young people love astronomy, but they might not be as keen to study science or physics or technology even. So what I try and do is I link school pupils with real scientists, with astronomers. I get them doing real research from their classroom using a network of robotic telescopes around the world and basically show them that science can be fun, it is interesting, and that they can be scientists themselves. And it's it's never been more important for people and youngsters to have a scientific understanding, especially in this sort of era of fake news and misinformation. So that's the sort of thing that I'm I'm working on at the moment. Well, that's all great. And I'm really excited to talk about the, the outreach elements, which I think will form the, ma- the majority of our conversation. But before we, before we get to that, can we just talk about the astronomy part of it and your background and how you came to be interested in this area of research? I did my A-levels, we're going back quite a few years now, um, Mm. in physics, chemistry and maths in school. And I I actually started my A-levels with biology as well, because I wasn't sure whether to study physics or biology. I didn't know which one to choose. But my physics teacher just made physics so interesting in the first couple of lessons And the biology lesson was about plants. And I thought, oh, I can't do two years of plants. Um, So I dropped biology and took up physics. So glad I did, because then I went on to study physics with astronomy in university, because I really liked learning about how things things worked from the small scale up to the large scale. So I went to Cardiff University, did my degree in physics with astronomy. And to be honest, I didn't know what I wanted to do when I graduated, But I heard that there was an opportunity in the department for a PhD student to look for something called dwarf galaxies in the universe. And I thought, oh, that sounds quite interesting. Read up on them. thought, yeah. So I went to speak to to the lecturer who was involved in that. And I got the place on the PhD. And so I spent four years looking for these basically building blocks of the universe So dwarf galaxies, as the name suggests, are small galaxies. So people are probably very used to seeing these beautiful spiral galaxies or maybe hearing about elliptical or irregular galaxies in our universe. But just like if you imagine on a a building site, so you imagine building houses and you have to put the bricks together to build the bigger houses. It's a bit like that in the universe. But the small bricks would be the dwarf galaxies that I was looking for and discovering. And then 
these dwarf galaxies, what's thought to happen is that over time, over billions of years, they all merge together to form larger structures, which we see as the spiral and the elliptical galaxies that we see today. But what theory tells us, or the the best case theory that we have, is that the smaller galaxies, the dwarf galaxies, like the rubble that's left over in a building yard or building site, there should be thousands of them that we should see in the universe. But our observations don't match up with the simulations. So I was trying to find these small galaxies and try and show that the simulations were correct. That was what I was doing for my research. And then after doing my PhD, I thought, you know what, I want a bit of a break from doing straight research. I'd had it for four years. And the opportunity came then to join the Fawkes Telescope Project, which was an outreach or education project that came to Cardiff University at the time. So I applied for a job with them and I got the job. I've been with them ever since through its periods of being funded and not being funded. All of us who were involved in in the project we have full-time roles in other places. I'm now the, the sales lead in the College of Science in Swansea Uni. And I'm also lecturing in the physics department. So I do astronomy projects and astronomy labs. And I've just developed a new module on communicating science too. So all my passions, everything that I love doing, I'm lucky enough to, to be doing it in my, in my role now. So it's great. If you'd like to visit us and find out more about studying at Swansea University, visit swansea.ac.uk forward slash open days to book your place. Wonderful. And you say that you know everyone likes astronomy. It is quite a cool topic, isn't it? But from my perspective as kind of an arts and humanities type, when you say you were looking for these dwarf galaxies, practically what were you doing? How how do you how do you look for a galaxy? I assume through a telescope, but what's the actual process? Oh, yeah. And it's such a hard life being an astronomer because you have to go to these exotic places to use telescopes. I'm so sorry. You used to have to do that. Now we've got robotic telescopes so you can observe from anywhere, which is great for school kids and that, but not so great if you're a research astronomer and you want to go to these nice places. So, yeah, I went to, and I'm not just showing off here, I went to La Palma, I went to Australia, I went to Puerto Rico to use different types of telescopes, so optical telescopes, so looking at visible light, but also radio telescopes as well. So I was studying how much gas was in these galaxies. And basically what you do is you'd sit there in, you would sit in a control room in front of a computer whilst the the telescope's obviously outside, hopefully on a clear night. And you would you would have planned beforehand what areas of the sky you wanted to point the telescopes to. So you put in the coordinates and you you tell a telescope how long you want to look at a certain area of sky. So I was looking in specific areas of the universe. Um, so I was looking in clusters of galaxies. So these are like cities of galaxies, if you like, where there's like hundreds and thousands of, of galaxies all all clustered together in the same sort of patch of sky. So I was pointing my telescope there. And then with the data that would come back, I'd run that through some specialist software that was designed to pick out literally, technical term now, fuzzy blobs um, in the images. And they literally look like little smudges on the screen. They were To me, they were beautiful. To other people, they were like, oh, that just looks strange to me. But it would pick them out, and then I I would sort of look at them a bit further and then analyse the light that was coming from there, seeing how much gas was contained in there and that sort of thing. 
does this sort of work, this might be a silly question, but does this sort of work make you as an individual feel quite sort of small and insignificant in the grand scheme of things? I think, I'm not sure that my work made me think that. I think maybe because I was just so focused on it and mm. and you get right into the fine detail of it. And I don't think you ever, well, I didn't get a chance in my PhD to ever get to just step back and think actually about what I was doing. Because, I mean, I was talking to someone fairly recently about my work and I said, oh yeah, and I discovered hundreds of galaxies in the Virgo cluster. And they were like, wow, you discovered galaxies. And I was just like, yeah. But to me, it just, you know, that was just it. It was a byproduct. It wasn't a sort of wow factor thing. The thing that makes me think, wow, I'm insignificant in this universe is when, like, if I go camping, like when I went camping to West Wales, it was a few years ago, and I stepped outside the tent in the middle of the night, and I saw the Milky Way, and and it was just amazing, and just seeing the night sky and all the stars, and if you're lucky enough to see the Milky Way, and you're just there, and you think, oh my gosh, you know, I'm a little tiny speck in all this, and yeah, that's a, that's a, the thing that makes me feel a bit like, whoa, I'm a small part in this cog. <laughs> That's exactly where my question came from, from thoughts of being younger and walking home to my parents' house in West Wales, where you could see all the stars and thinking, gosh, we're small. Yeah, yeah. Something else from my childhood, actually, which I guess is relevant, is that my favourite subject, or my favourite science subject in school was physics, which is quite unusual, I think. But I think there was the, it was because physics was applied in some ways. You could take kind of ideas or theories, but apply them to real world circumstances. So would you say that's similar in terms of your your interest in subject and how that led to astronomy? Yeah, definitely. Because I think you, I think in in some cases in school, in some of the, the, the modules or the the lessons that you go through, it can just all seem a bit abstract. And it unless it's applied to your own life, sometimes it's hard to see what the point is in studying it. And I know I've certainly spoken to young people mm-hmm. who said, well, what's the point of this? We're never going to use it. But with physics, as I say, I had a really good physics teacher. She was really inspirational. She was quite mad, which just made our physics lessons really entertaining to, to do strange things like jump up on the desks, which when I look back, I think she was shorter than me and I'm quite petite. It was quite a feat for her to do that. But, you know, she'd just do these mad things just to, to keep us engaged, I think. But the way that she taught it and the way that she made sure that we could see how it was applied to everyday lives and what was happening, you know, in our lives, yeah, definitely brought the subject to life for, for me anyway. I've got a viv- very vivid memory of lots of boys in my physics class doing press-ups. And, and that, that was something by my slightly eccentric but lovely physics teacher um, they, to, to do to prove something about gravity, I think, but I can't quite remember. Mm. But to, talking, talking about, talking about uh, physics teachers, actually, there is a shortage or there are, there are a lack of physics teachers in this country in secondary schools, aren't there? Yes, there are. And that, that's one of the reasons, I think, that I'm so particularly interested and, and passionate about doing my outreach and public engagement and trying to trying to be a role model, um, especially to sort of the unrepresented um, areas. So getting girls into science is something I'm, I'm very keen on. So we know that in Wales, for example, the number of students who are taking A-level physics it is much lower than the number of students who are taking chemistry or biology, for example. And then if you, if you look at physics in particular, it's something like 
18 or 19% of them were female in 2017, I think it was. And the number of teachers who have actually got a physics degree who teach physics, it's less than 45% or something. So, you know, less than half of the teachers who are teaching physics to, to young people have got a physics degree. And, you know, maybe... Maybe that's why physics is seen as maybe not so interesting as some people, because if you don't have a degree in it, how can you how can you have that confidence maybe that you can bring and that brings sort well, of yeah. enthusiasm to the subject, isn't it? To teach it well, I guess. Yeah, exactly. And my interpretation of this, because I, I I have always read that physics in schools attracts the the lowest number of applications to, to be a teacher. And, and my interpretation of this has always been that if you've got a physics degree, it's very likely that you can go into quite, well, lucrative or very interesting work that isn't essentially paid the salary that a teacher is paid, but also with all the difficulties that come with teaching. Is there something is there something to look at on that end too, that there maybe aren't enough incentives for teachers to go into schools and teach physics? Yeah, that that's probably that's probably one aspect of it as well. And I mean, obviously when we're advertising physics degrees, we do say it makes you employable by a whole range of organizations i mean some of the some of the places that my cohort from from my degree went to were really interesting like somebody got a job for liverpool football club because he's now analyzing and i don't know anything about football so forgive me if i'm wrong on this it's something to do with analyzing the positions of the players as they're playing so that goes into the coaching team or something i mean he did that after doing a physics degree People went into accountancy and finance. Yeah, you hear about these people saying, well, yeah, I've, I've graduated. I'm working for this accountancy or this finance firm and I'm getting thousands and thousands. And then you hear people who go into teaching. I've, I've got a couple of friends, again, from actually from my PhD days, who went into teaching. And one of them, I think he lasted about a year and he just said, for the for the money they get and the the stress it's a very very stressful job i suppose it depends what school you go into he said it he just could be happier in a job outside there so yeah there's there's added stress maybe some more incentives would help get more people into teaching physics yeah it sounds like a a long term plan is needed to really re really rethink all of this um definitely you talked about the gender balance a minute ago. Should we explore that a little bit more? Why do so many more boys take physics both at schools and university? Oh, if we knew the answer to that question, <laughs> it would probably be, well, I'd say it would be very rich. I don't know whether we'd be rich. It's it's a really good question. And I, I don't really know, to be honest. I don't know whether part of it is science is seen more as a boy subject than than girls, but I think that's changing. I mean, the Institute of Physics is doing a lot of work at the moment to try and improve the the gender the gender balance when it comes to physics, obviously in particular. I don't know because I've always been interested in science. I've always loved physics. I was also encouraged by my parents in doing whatever I wanted to do. So I did enjoy the arts. I did my GCSE in one of them was music as well. So I did enjoy the, the arts and humanities and, and music side, but I, I loved the sciences as well. But even when I was in school, when I did my A-levels, actually there were four 
boys doing A-level physics and there were three girls doing it, so nearly 50-50. And then when I, when I went and did my degree in physics, when I went to all the open days, for most of the open days, I was the only girl there. But I've got two older brothers, so it didn't bother me being in a room full of, of boys, to be honest. It just didn't bother me at all. But when I did my degree, it was n- near enough 50-50 in the, in the undergrad degree as well. But then the numbers just drop off, as you, I think, as you get, you know, as you start doing your PhDs and then go on to, to working in physics. It's, it's fascinating, isn't it? I, I've written quite a lot about the, the history of education, and there's certainly a long-term legacy of, like you said, boys' subjects and girls' subjects that mm. I think still, still filters through now. And of course, engaging young people, whether they're boys or girls, is like at the centre of what you do, and it's at the centre of your work. So if you could just summarise why that is just so important to you, but also for all of us. It's important to me, as I say, because I really want... Because I, I know that there's this difference between, you know, boys enjoying science and, and girls enjoying science. And I think actually that difference comes in. I think boys and girls enjoy it equally when they're in primary school and lower down in secondary school. But it's when you get a little bit older that the sort of divide seems to come in. So I used to teach GCSE astronomy at some local high schools a few years ago. And one of the classes that I taught, it was only open to girls because it was they were trying to get girls in the school interested in science. So it was from year nine up to year 12, I think it was. And there were about 30 girls in the class. So they were clearly interested in the astronomy. But like one of them said to me once that she hated science. She said, Miss, oh, I really hate science. And I said, oh, do you? Are you, are you not enjoying the class? And she said, oh, no, I, I love this. And I said, well, you're doing science. Astronomy is science. And she went, oh, yeah. That, that stuck with me because I'm thinking, well, yeah, that's, that's one of the reasons that I do what I do, <laughs> teaching physics by stealth, in a way. <laughs> just trying to enthuse people and just make them realize that actually science is interesting. Okay, yes, it is hard or it can be hard, but it is very interesting and it can be fun as well. And, you know, I, I think I mentioned at the, the start, we're in this this era of misinformation and fake news, we've got to learn and we've got to teach the next generation about critical thinking and about how not to just believe everything that they see or hear on the internet. And you've got to sort of read and think for yourself about what it is that you're seeing or hearing, especially if it's about, you know, science in in particular, but about general society in general really and things that you see in the media you know just take a step back and think well is that true let's do an analysis of it and I think actually when you study physics you do learn to to think in a slightly different way you think outside the box as well but you do learn this sort of critical thinking skills as well so I think that's very important if you'd like to find out more about our research at Swansea University visit swansea.ac.uk forward slash research. And I guess at the nub of it, our society needs scientists, it needs physicists, it needs chemists, biologists, everyone. And encouraging as many people who might be interested in it to do it means that talent doesn't slip through the net. Is that fair? Yeah, yeah, definitely. Any organisation is better if they have people from a a wide, a diverse backgrounds rather than just 
niche areas. I mean, one of the things that I can't remember the, the exact details of it, but it was, I think it was only a couple of years ago, there were some female astronauts up on the, were they on the space station and they were going to do a spacewalk. But then at the last minute, they realized they couldn't do the spacewalk because the, the spacesuits were too big for them because actually the spacesuits were designed for men as opposed to women. And if, if you read up on this, you can see it a lot. A lot of companies and that, they will design things based on the typical person, but the typical person is normally a male. So like I was reading up on this and things like when they were designing mobile phones and they think about how it fits in the palm of your hand, so how you can control it one-handed, but then that's the hand of a male, which is generally larger than the hand of a female, so it doesn't work so well for us. And when they when they first designed, when they were doing crash test dummies in cars and they were designing seatbelts and things and, and airbags, that was the crash test dummies were based on like the body of, of, of a male as opposed to a female, so actually would be worse off. Yeah, it's all those small things. That's hopefully improved now. But, you know, you've got to have a diverse background in in the people that are in organizations to actually get the best out of out of what you're trying to do in that organization i think sure when senior female politicians sat on the front bench of the the house of commons in westminster people like barbara castle or even hazel blears their feet couldn't touch the floor because the <laughs> because the i mean they were short anyway but um but the seats were designed for men i just and I, so yes i i hear what you're saying that happens totally. to me all the time <laughs> <laughs> Well, me too. I'm not very tall either. <laughs> Could you tell me, because I know this is related to the the outreach stuff you do, tell me more about the Forks Telescope project. Yep. So the, the Forks Telescope project was set up in the year 2000, and it was set up by a UK millionaire, Dill Forks. He had made his money in computing over in America, but he was British, and he came back over to, to Britain and he saw that school pupils were disengaged in STEM subjects, and he wanted to do something to, to help encourage them in, in this sort of area. So he gave £10 million of his own money to build two robotic telescopes, so they're two-metre diameter telescopes, the mirror's two metres in diameter, so large telescopes, research class. One was put in Hawaii, and one was put in Australia, and they were especially for schools to use from their classrooms so you can control them over the internet so obviously when it's daytime here in the uk it's nighttime in hawaii and australia now the project itself is then taken over in five years later so in 2005 by a multi-millionaire called wayne rosen and he was senior vice president of a small website you might have heard of called google and when he retired from google um he had this retirement dream of building a network of robotic telescopes. So telescopes in the Northern Hemisphere and telescopes in the Southern Hemisphere. So he did this. It's called the Las Cumbres Observatory, or LCO for short. And these are research class telescopes. So professional astronomers access these telescopes to do their own research. But then the telescopes also, and through us, the Fawkes Telescope Project in the UK, we have dedicated time on all the telescopes so we can offer that time to schools in the UK. They can either control the telescopes in real-time mode, so they, they sit at the computer in their, in their classroom or their astronomy club or 
you know, wherever they're doing it. And they can literally watch the telescope move as they ask it to move to certain areas of the sky and see the images come in, which is fantastic. Or they can just upload a list of targets that they want to observe, send off to the telescope, it'll schedule it and then send them the images back. But it just means that they can actually work with real astronomers and they can take pretty pictures with the telescopes and that's great to start with. But what I try and do is encourage them to actually do real research. And we have had school pupils discovering new asteroids, for example. They've been working with astronomers in Cambridge University on a on space mission follow-up observations. And we've had school pupils who've been in astronomical journals as well, on papers as well, for the data collection, help with analysis. So they get the opportunity to, to work like a real scientist from, well, from when they're in school. That's amazing. How many of these telescopes are there? Because they, they form part of a ring around the globe, basically, don't they? Yeah. So there's a ring in the Northern Hemisphere and a ring in the Southern Hemisphere. And the idea is wherever you are in the world, there'll always be a set of telescopes in the dark mm. that you can use. There's, I can't remember the exact number, the, with, with the Forks telescopes, the, there's only two of them. They're the two meter telescopes and they're, they're the biggest ones. But then there's um, some one meter telescopes and then 0.4 meter telescopes. So we're getting smaller, smaller diameter mirrors, but wider field of view. So you can see larger parts of the sky. There's probably, I think there's at least 20 of them in the mm. whole network. So plenty for, for schools to be able to, to access and use. How widespread is this use? How many schools? I mean, I don't obviously need exact figures, but roughly or in terms of proportions, how many schools are actively engaging with this? In the UK, we have probably a couple of hundred schools who are registered to mm. use the telescopes. But to be honest, there's probably only maybe tens of them who are actively using the telescopes. I mean, to, to be fair, it can be quite scary for the teachers because we can we say to them, you have access to a five million pound telescope in Australia or Hawaii. You do whatever you want with, with your students with it. And they'd be like, oh, I don't want to break a five million pound telescope. I always say to them, although it's not a challenge, you can't break the telescopes. Uh, you might overexpose an image and it might look really bright, but you can't actually break them. But it, it can be a bit scary for teachers. And some teachers also don't want to look like they don't know what they're doing in front of their class either. Some teachers are perfectly fine with that and they they just let the, the pupils crack on with using the telescopes. Um, and they say to me, well, you know, I don't really know how to do it, but my pupils are streets ahead of me. And that's absolutely great. Some teachers aren't comfortable with that. We we have lots of, um, so I've written loads of educational resources and projects, and I, I Zoom with teachers quite regularly to, to explain how they can use it. And we do teacher CPD as well, so we train them in using them. So we, we're trying to get the word out there, but I think it's just it's just trying to, to give them the confidence that they can use it in their classroom. If you're a teacher and you'd like our help with talking about this topic in the classroom, visit swansea.ac.uk forward slash teachers for more information. Picking up on this idea that, or this fact, that school children have made discoveries, I mean, that's 
first of all, that's amazing. It must be very yeah. gratifying for you as well. I love it. I do. I absolutely love it when, when a school discovers something. It can be really, really hard work when they've just discovered something. With asteroid discoveries, you have to do follow-up observations. So, so when you take an image with a telescope and you, you point it at a patch of sky, you get this black and white image that comes back. And obviously this, the sky is dark in the image and then the stars are white. And if there's an asteroid in that image, it will just appear, it'll look like a star. It'll be just a white dot in there. So you have to take a series of images and sort of flick through them, do like a little animation. And all the stars stay in the same place. And the asteroid, if there is one in there, you can see it moving. Uh. So once you've got that what you have to do to be able to claim it as a discovery of one you made is to take some more images of it. So you have to carry on taking images of it. It might be even over three or four months. Other people can take images of it then, but for you to claim it as your discovery, you have to show that you were the first one to ever see it. And from a number of observations, what you can do is you can calculate its orbit and then you can check back in other people's images to see whether it's ever been discovered before. So it can be quite a, a flurry of, oh, quick, we've got to carry on taking images of this object. Six or seven years ago, we seemed to be really, really lucky with the telescopes. We went through a period where there were potential new discoveries every few weeks for like like a couple of months or something. We also, we were working with a, a German astronomer. He was working in schools in Germany and one of his school students that he was working with, he discovered a new asteroid. I think they discovered a couple actually. And then schools in Wales then, so there was a school in Monmouth and a school in Cardiff who took follow-up observations. So they were involved with helping ascertain that it was a new asteroid, it was a new discovery, it wasn't one that had been seen before and maybe lost or whatever. And so what actually happened, so about a year or two later, we were allowed to name that asteroid, because if you discover it, you're allowed to name it. And so we had a bit of a, a competition with all our schools users, and the asteroid's hmm. name was Snowdonia. That was oh. the name we decided on, which is a nice one. The rationale for doing that being that obviously it's a distinctively Welsh area, yes. and therefore a Welsh name. Yeah, yeah, exactly that. We wanted something that reflected. Okay, well, the the, the project is in Wales, and Welsh schools have helped with this because the German astronomer had discovered a couple of other asteroids, so he was able to name them. But he said, "I tell you what, you can have this asteroid for Wales, as it were." And he'd just been on holiday to Snowdonia as well, so he particularly liked that suggestion. So we asked our schools, we said, okay, you know, give us some suggestions for names. And then we looked at them and we thought, okay, yeah, this is the best one. That's lovely. Obviously, as you've already said, there's there's lots out there. Uh, space is big. How How likely is it that school groups might actually make one of these discoveries? I wouldn't say it's not too difficult, but it's more common than you might think. Mm. Because when you're pointing, especially if you're looking at asteroids, if you're pointing the, the telescopes towards the area of the, the main asteroid belt, so in our solar system between Mars and Jupiter, we've got a belt of asteroids. So it's just thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of asteroids in there. So if you're looking at a known asteroid already, 
And chances are there's going to be another asteroid in your field of view, in your image, that you weren't expecting. It might already have been discovered, but it might be a new one. Apart from asteroids, I mean, one of the things that one of the projects that we're involved with, with the Fawkes Telescope Project, is the European Space Agency's Gaia mission, which was launched a few years ago. And this is basically, it's, so it's a, a satellite that's sitting up in space and it's scanning the sky and it's mapping a billion stars in our galaxy. But what it's doing is it's measuring whether the stars change in brightness or whether there's an area of sky where there wasn't a star before and then suddenly there is a star. So it's, it's looking for those sorts of things. But because it's, it's sending back so much data, astronomers just don't have the time to go through it all. So they set up this sort of citizen science type approach to it, of which schools were very, very important. They've got a whole page on their website. It's called Gaia Alerts. And so they, they put a list in a table of objects which um, have recently been discovered and supernovae in particular. So a supernovae is the death of a, of a massive star, maybe 10 times mass of our sun, gets to the end of its life and it explodes. And they're particularly interested in these types of objects, but they can't follow them up. So they asked for our help to see whether we could get our schools who are using our telescopes to actually do follow-up observations. And what the schools do is they go on the Gaia website, they say, okay, well, this is one that's been highlighted as potentially interesting. Let's follow that with some observations. They take observations over a period of a few weeks. And then they, the schools themselves can measure the brightness of that object and see how it changes over time and then feed that into the the Gaia website. And it does actually genuinely help astronomers decide what type of object it is. That's really cool. Yeah. In terms of collaboration, uh, which you've just talked about, there are obviously lots of other groups and bodies that you work with too, aren't there? So I've read a little bit about the Science Technology Facilities Council. Yes. So STFC, they're the funding council for, if if you've got um, physics, particle physics, astronomy, that sort of area, they will fund projects and that. And obviously they fund research, but they, they are also very keen on outreach and public engagement as well. So they have a series of grants that are available to researchers to apply for because they they want to not just showcase the research that's going on in the UK that's linked to STFC, but they also want to inspire the next generation as well. So I'm I'm lucky actually. I've just fairly recently was successful in applying for funding from SDFC for another outreach project, which is more down to earth, if you like. It's not using telescopes to look out into space, but it's looking here on the earth for evidence that bits from space have fallen to the earth. So it's it's called Stardust Hunters. And it's it's actually, I suppose, linked to the area of asteroids and comets. So have you ever seen a shooting star in the sky? Oh, yes. Question for you. Yeah, yeah, loads. Yeah. Do you know what they are? I thought they were tiny little bits of meteor that are coming through the atmosphere. Oh, I love it. Brilliant. Yes. Do you know what, when you say tiny, what sort of size are you thinking? Oh, I always had it in my head that they would be like the size of my head. Oh, right. No. 
Is, is your head tiny then? <laughs> oh, well, some might say it's very big. But, um. <laughs> no, actually, if if a piece of rock the size of your head were to come through the, through the atmosphere, then you'd you'd see that more as a as a fireball in the sky. So that would be a really bright streak in the sky and a, and a dangerous event. It would it would be oh, dangerous, quite okay. painful too. Yeah. Okay, right, right. So when you see shooting stars, these are objects coming through the atmosphere that are literally about the size of a grain of sand, you know, wow. or if not smaller. And the reason that, you know, you see them as these bright streaks of light is because as they come through the atmosphere, because of friction, they're burning up as they come through there. And so they start to glow. When, whenever I go into schools, I always use this example and anyone listening to this can do this. If you put your hands together and you rub them, and then you rub them faster and harder, you'll notice that your hands heat up. And that's because of friction. So that's exactly what's happening when you've got your, your bits of space dust coming through the atmosphere and rubbing against the gases there. So some of the bits of dust that are coming through the atmosphere burn up completely there, but actually some manage to land on the floor, but they are absolutely tiny. They're like the size of a full stop in a typical word document. You know, they're, they're really small. But what you can do is a, a lot of the, the space dust that lands on the on the Earth has iron in it. Because there's, there's a lot of iron out there in the universe. And so what you can do, and this is what our outreach project is to do, you get a magnet and you can put it in a food bag and you literally drag it along the floor and you pick up, so the magnet attracts all the bits that have got iron or, or metals in them, you pick up those bits and then you can you can put them through a sieve and you can actually use a sieve that you've got in your in your kitchen. So this is all stuff you can do at home, but we're gonna have special kits to give out to schools to do this. And then if you look at the the smaller bits that you manage to sieve out, look at them through a microscope, the ones which potentially have come from space, you'll notice are spherical. So they're ball shaped. And that's what we're trying to get kids in South Wales and West Wales to do with this outreach project, to try and find potential bits of space dust. And then what we'll do is they can send us an image of it or they send us the actual object. And then in the College of Engineering, they've got specialist microscopes where we can do an analysis and say, what is the sort of chemical makeup of this? So is it from space or is it something that looks like a micrometeorite, that's what they're called, that might have come from fireworks or from roadworks or, you know, man-made things on the earth. Well, I'm learning I'm learning loads and it sounds really cool. In a second, I'm just going to ask you about how ultimately anybody listening to this who's a young person and is interested can get involved. But before I do, I think there's just one sort of outstanding thing that I, I need to ask, which I think is important to ask, which is that... Um, I mean, again, this is anecdotal, I suppose. But when I when, when I was in school, you could do GCSE astronomy, and it was run by a, a wonderful, quite eccentric, lovely physics teacher, a different one to the press ups guy. <laughs> yeah, he offered this GCSE, and two of my friends, who were kind of guess like me, you know, sort of quiet, academic-y types, two of my friends took this GCSE and did it and enjoyed it. But it was just the two of them, and they were particular types of people. And I wondered whether this subject is still perceived, at least, as a little bit nerdy. And if it is, how can we maybe overcome that? Maybe I'm the wrong person to ask this because I'm obviously biased because I think (laughs) astronomy is absolutely brilliant and cool. But I don't think that GCSE astronomy is seen as nerdy 
any anymore anyway. Right. You've got um, Professor Brian Cox on the TV doing all his astronomy stuff, solar system and the, and the universe. I think it's become a lot more trendy, to be honest, astronomy as a subject. Yeah. And I think that although, yeah, if you do GCSE astronomy, you're doing an extra GCSE. So some people might think that's a bit nerdy, but actually... When you say it's a GCSE in astronomy, I think probably the perception is, oh, wow, that's really cool. Well, that's really good to hear. And yeah, I'm sure things have moved on from the, uh, what would it be, nearly 15 years since I did my GCSEs. So yeah, cool. Okay, so final question, Sarah. You know, there's lots of young people listening to this, I'm sure, who have been inspired by what you're saying. What are their next steps? How can they get more involved? Okay, so if you're a young person listening to this, I think the best thing to do is to go to your science teacher or technology or maths teacher even in school and show them the website and say, we need to get involved in this in school. So the website is www.forks-telescope.com. And you know your teacher can have a look at that and, and see what it's all about and see all the resources and can just contact me and see how they can actually get involved in that. And then if there's anyone listening to this, you know, a member of staff at the university or anything, and maybe you've got kids in school, or maybe you're a governor at a local school or something, then just spread the word. Everything that we do is free. And as I say, I train teachers. I'm happy to work with teachers closely into how to put this into the classroom and how to link it in with whatever topic they're doing at the moment because there's lots of cross-curricular links that you can do with this just happy to help and I'd just love to spread the word and particularly I would love some more schools in Wales to make some astronomical discoveries well I think this podcast has been part of a sort of rallying call for for more budding astronomers so I hope it's I hope it's helped it's been it's been really interesting and I've enjoyed the conversation a lot Sarah so thank you very much it's been it's been good to talk to you Wonderful. To find out more about Sarah's work, please visit her staff profile page on the university's website, or you can visit the website that she just mentioned a moment ago, uh, which is www.forks-telescope.com. Forks is spelled F-A-U-L-K-E-S. To find out more about this podcast and Swansea University's research, visit swansea.ac.uk forward slash research. That's all from us today. Thanks for listening, and thank you to our guest, Dr. Sarah Roberts. If you've enjoyed this episode, please follow. I'm Sam Blaxland, and that was Exploring Global Problems from Swansea University.